Support for this podcast comes from Blackline and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Jennifer Templeman, CFO of Jumpstart for Young Children, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is Episode 235. How as a finance leader are you driving driving change in your organization? How are you driving change within your organization? In this episode, we speak to Ron Shaw, CFO of employee benefits firm Hodges Mace. Yeah, my my biggest priorities are really more on the human capital side than the financial capital side. It's ensuring we have the right people in the right positions with the right tools to deliver for our clients. For the finance team, I would say my biggest priority is to develop a more dynamic forecasting process the um, the days where you developed a, a budget and, and that's all you operated off of for the full year or you developed a three-year plan or a five-year plan, I, I think those days are gone. Listen to our complete interview with Ron after these words from our sponsor. Many accounting and finance professionals are facing a sizable obstacle these days. In this age of data enlightenment, Their financial close processes leave no time for data analysis, the very activity that opens the door to new opportunities and career advancement. Blackline has the answer. By automating, centralizing, and streamlining financial close operations, Blackline customer organizations are now ready for the data-centric world, allowing their finance and accounting professionals to open the door to new opportunities. To learn more, visit blackline.com forward slash CFO. Hello, we're speaking to Ron Shaw, CFO and COO of Hodges Mace, an employee benefits firm based in Atlanta. Ron, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Glad to be here. We're curious about Hodges Mace. We'd like to hear a little bit about them. I understand they've done a number of acquisitions in the uh, not too distant past here, but first let's find out a little bit about you, Ron, and what were those uh, career experiences you feel helped prepare you for a CFO role? Yeah, there. You know, there as I look back at my career, there were a couple uh, milestones or, or things along the way that I think have helped me get to the role that I'm at now. Uh, the first is coming out of business school, uh, I chose investment banking as my first job. Um, it was it was a great experience for me, and, and it gave me an opportunity to work with CEOs and CFOs across a number of different companies um, that were clients of mine, giving me a broad exposure very early in my career to the types of decisions that leaders of a company had to make and how they went about making those decisions. It also gave me some perspective on how CEOs and CFOs interacted at the different clients that I worked with so I could figure out what worked for them and what didn't work, and was just able to kind of add some things to my toolkit uh, by observing the, the behavior and interaction between management teams at, at the clients that I worked with. Uh, the, next, the next thing that I think was helpful for me was when I made the decision to leave the investment banking world, I took a finance role at a smaller company. And so when I was looking to leave investment banking, there were a couple different paths that I was considering. One was whether I take my M&A skills that I had developed and move into a corporate development role for a larger entity or if I move down to a uh, finance leadership role at a smaller 
company, and I chose the latter, and it was uh, it was really helpful for me because when you're in the investment banking world, you as I mentioned, you you interact with management teams and you're working with them on some of the bigger decisions that they're making, but a lot of the nuts and bolts of what you have to do day to day in the job were not things that you really became aware of and things that I wasn't um, really that familiar with. So uh, I took a CFO role with a smaller company that was a former investment banking client of mine. And while the title was CFO, it was really more of a controller slash finance director type role. Uh, but it was important that I got that experience. I was able to dig in and really understand the details of some of the different things that you deal with, like handling payroll, tax, compliance, things that in a smaller company you may not have separate departments or resources um, that you can delegate those tasks to. And so I learned a lot of those things. I also didn't have a lot of experience managing people. Once I got that exposure uh, and, and developed those skills, I think they prepared me well to move into the role that I've had here with Hodges Mace. Now you move into a larger organization. What did you want to do with the job? What exactly uh, were you looking to, to build on here? Yeah, so, you know, I, I wanted the role to be truly strategic. And, you know, I, I'll use air quotes around the word strategic here because it's a word that, that gets used a lot and, and I say is often overused. You know, what does that really mean? And so, um, as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of clients during my tenure in investment banking where I saw the different types of roles a CFO could play as part of a management team. To me, strategic meant truly being a partner to the CEO, helping the CEO think not only about how to be more efficient and reduce cost, but also how do you grow the company? whether it's selling more of what you have or adding more products and services to sell. How do you attract, retain, and develop the best people? There's obviously a cost to doing all of those things, but if done right, those are truly investments and should be viewed that way. How do you provide great customer service to your clients? It's about understanding all of the aspects of the business and the industry that you're in and then thinking about how to profitably grow the business over the long term. I really stress long term. Um, you know, It's not about necessarily making the numbers this month or this quarter, thinking about what really creates value uh, for the organization over the long term, and and really not being viewed by the company as a doctor, no. Uh, I think a lot of times CFOs get pigeonholed into that, into that category where, you know, all you're doing is challenging uh, – ideas that are brought forth by, by other departments or other members of the management team or, or saying no to expenses that others may want to incur. So it, you don't want to be viewed as a doctor, no. You want to be viewed as a partner and focused on value, which is where the CEO is really going to see that, that you can be of assistance to them. So focusing on value for our employees, focusing on value for our clients, and value for our investors. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the uh, competitive landscape out there for the services that Hodges Mace offers. Yeah, so our, our industry is, is pretty fragmented right now and, and has been for, for a little while. We're in a unique position in the industry because of the combination of products and services we offer. Hodges Mace was started in 2004 as a services company focused on serving large employers, and everyone's got their definition of what a large employer is, but our definition of it 
uh, was and, and continues to be companies with more than 2,000 employees. So we provided service, services to large employers uh, with their benefit communication and enrollment needs. Uh, we had a strong group of competitors that, that we faced there. There were a few other national firms like us and then a group of regional firms that we competed with, and, and we competed well in that space, and we grew to be one of the largest companies in that space. But over time, what we learned was that clients wanted more from us. In addition to the services they were, that we were providing, they were also looking for technology to help them administer their benefits, and as the Affordable Care Act got introduced and implemented, there was growing complexity around compliance with the Affordable Care Act, and clients were looking to us for solutions to help them with that. So in 2014, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, Jack, we completed a couple of acquisitions. We bought two companies, SmartBen and Continuous Health. Both were technology companies that were focused on solving different benefit-related issues for clients, and they had their own set of competitors uh, as well. But our thought, our belief was that bringing the three companies together would create an organization that had a differentiated set of products and services uh, in the market versus what, what everyone else had, and that would be attractive to a broader set of clients. We had partnered with both of the firms for several years prior to bringing the three companies together, which has helped us in the integration. And in the two years or so since we've completed the acquisition, the markets reacted very positively to the combination. We've seen strong growth um, in new client acquisition and growth even with the existing client base. And now we're seeing in the market other service companies are adding technology capabilities and other technology companies are adding service capabilities to build out their portfolio to, um, to you know, emulate us in some ways, which validates that this is what the market's looking for. And so depending on the particular client situation, we still run into different sets of competitors uh, you know, depending on what the client's looking for. One set, if the client is focused primarily on the services that we offer, another set, if the client is uh, primarily focused on the technology. But the good news for us is that we're seeing both of them and we're getting more at bats as a result of having all of that under one roof. So tell us, what are the key metrics you rely on to reveal how the company's performing today? Yeah, so right now we are in our peak selling season. Uh, many clients and prospects are preparing to, for their open enrollment, which typically takes place in the fourth quarter of the year. And so uh, the summer months are typically when we are looking to close a lot of sales activity. And so what I'm watching really every day is the sales activity, new activity that's going into the pipeline and the velocity at which activity is moving through the pipeline. But in addition to that, I also look at a number of other metrics, uh, whether it's on a weekly or, or monthly basis. Uh, from a financial standpoint, I'm looking at bookings, which are uh, which is really new business sold, uh, billings, and cash collections, and, and tracking that and, and making sure that that all of that is is moving through the funnel efficiently. From an operational perspective, uh, looking at the time it takes from when we close a sale to when a client goes live and the capacity utilization for our team to determine when and, and how many folks we need to bring on to support the new sales. And then finally, you know, a new area for us and an area where we're really starting to develop metrics is marketing and, and revenue marketing specifically. Historically, we've been a sales-driven organization with really little or no marketing support. 
Last year, we brought in Liz Safaya, an experienced marketing executive as our SVP of marketing, and she's built a team to lead us into this new world of revenue marketing for us. Liz and the team have launched several different campaigns during the course of this year, uh, and so I meet with her and the team regularly to look at what these programs are producing in terms of qualified leads. We're probably still too early to measure ROI on some of those programs, but as we get to the end of this year, we'll be able to start measuring the effectiveness of our marketing spend, looking at things like cost per lead, lead conversion, cost per acquisition. So th- those are the, the different metrics from a financial operating and, and marketing standpoint that, that I track. We always like to ask for a moment a strategic insight that a finance leader is uniquely positioned to experience, uh, given their visibility into the numbers and the different processes within companies. Um, can you share with us an aha moment that you may have had that uh, uh, there was some strategic insight that led you to uh, perhaps do things differently or uh, pursue a different opportunity within the, the company? Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the aha moment, one of, one of the aha moments for me is um, yeah, talk about customer stratification, and I think this ties back some to my consulting experience. Customer stratification is something I did with a number of clients when, uh, when I worked in the consulting world, and it seems like a pretty common sense thing for companies to do. We all hear about the 80-20 rule where 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your clients or you know, whatever percentages you want to put in there, but, but that general rule of thumb. Well, you know, for Hodges Mace, as I mentioned earlier, we had historically focused on serving large employers. By the nature of the services we provided, we had a handful of clients. We didn't have a lot of clients, and all were large clients that generated a, a meaningful amount of revenue. So stratifying customers was not an exercise that we had really done internally here. But as we integrated the two acquisitions and combined our client bases, we had a much larger client base and we had a much greater diversity of clients in terms of their size, the revenue they generated, what products and services they bought from us because we had a much broader offering of things that um, we we were taking to the market. So we wanted to do a couple of things through the stratification process. First, we wanted to identify our largest customers by revenue. This is a pretty straightforward process and you're run some reports out of your accounting system and you you can look at the revenue over the past year or the current run rate for clients if they're growing uh, with you. And and so you you do that and we did did that. That was step one. Next, we wanted to see what each client was buying from us. We have a range of products and services as I mentioned and not everyone buys everything. So we wanted to see who's buying what from us. So again, a relatively straightforward process, but to get on, it was good to get on paper and put in one place and tie it to the revenue that we were generating from each client. So not surprisingly, most of our largest clients in terms of revenue tended to be the ones that bought most of our products and services. But there were a few outliers in the groups, in the group uh, where you had maybe the uh, particularly large employer client that may have been purchasing only one or two of our offerings, but because of their size, they fell into the top tier of clients by revenue. So we added a metric to to look at this, which was the revenue per the the client employee uh, client's employee headcount. 
So in our industry, a lot of the fees are charged based on what we refer to as a PEPM or per employee per month basis. We basically take the client's headcount in a given month and charge the the fee that we've negotiated with the client uh, uh, times that headcount each month. So we converted all of our clients. Um, we took the revenue and the different services they were providing and their headcounts and converted everything to a PEPM basis. And what this identified for us was the opportunity for additional upselling and cross-selling in a number of different accounts. And this impacts the, the company in a lot of different ways. For example, are there things that we discovered out of this that we can feed back to the sales team where they could focus on the cross-sell and upsell opportunities? Or from a staffing standpoint, is there a different type of account manager that should be assigned to an account where there are some of these upsell and cross-sell opportunities, someone that's got maybe a little bit more of a sales bent to them than accounts that are more in a maintain mode? And so we took the, the findings of this and, and we made a couple of decisions um, for, for the company. One was we have a particular product that we decided we would no longer sell on a standalone basis. It's a good product, it's a technology product, but the price point is so low for that product that we couldn't support um, the account management and servicing that clients would need if they bought just that product from us. We'll still bundle that product with, with other things, so if a client buys at least one other thing, they can buy that from us. But we said earlier this year, you know, we're, we're not going to sell this on a standalone basis anymore. Second thing we did was we created a new enterprise clients team to manage relationships with our largest and most complex clients. As I mentioned, most of our large clients buy multiple products and services, and so you've got different departments within the company, a lot of different departments within the company that are touching that client. And what we found was we wanted to add a layer um, in between those different departments, the, the folks that are doing the ongoing support for those clients, and uh, and the client by introducing this relationship manager, this enterprise client's relationship manager, into this role to try and bring everything together and create a better client experience. So those were a couple of the different findings. So as I said, the client strategy, stratification process seems like basic blocking and tackling, but it was sort of a new thing for us and has led to a couple of really immediate sort of changes we've made to the business um, and, and you know, some positive results that we've seen from that. Okay. I want to find out uh, a little bit about the workforce. You've mentioned it several times. When it comes to uh, Hodges Mace's uh, workforce, wh what are your goals as a finance leader? Yeah, uh, from my perspective, it's pretty simple. We want to attract and retain the best people. And the reason for that is uh, turnover is expensive. And so we want to find good people, and then we want to retain them. So Suzanne Huff, who's our chief HR officer, and I work together to ensure we're offering competitive compensation packages and, and to ensure we're investing in training and development for our people so that they see a career path ahead of them and, and they're happy about uh, being here with us. I think we've done a nice job of building a culture and environment where people like to come to work, enjoy the people that they work with, um, enjoy being around their colleagues. But because of the growth that we've experienced over the past several years, our average tenure has decreased among the workforce. Our turnover is actually pretty low, but with the number of new team members we've brought on, the average has decreased. And so what's really important for us is 
finding people that fit within the organization and onboarding them and ensuring that we maintain the culture that we've built because in addition to the compensation, culture is a big part of why people stay with the company they're with. And so if we want to attract and retain the best people, it's important for us that we maintain that culture. Okay, we're going to move to the mentoring round now. And this is where we ask you several quick questions uh, to offer uh, inspiration as well as some mentoring to uh, aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? I think probably how much more integrated finance is into the entire organization. And yeah, I, I, my, my sense of it when I, I made the change in, in my career going from investment banking into uh, the finance role was that finance was maybe a little bit more isolated from other parts of the organization. But um, what I've seen over my tenure here is that you, know, you can turn that role into something that is very integrated into the entire organization. And as finance leaders, we have an opportunity to help really help drive decisions across the entire organization. It's not just about reducing expenses. As I mentioned earlier, it's about creating value. And we can do that in a lot of ways as long as we're willing to get out from behind the computer screen, out of our Excel workbooks, and get to know our clients, get to know our competitors in the industry, get to know our colleagues, um, you know, the staff that we've got working for us, the um, business unit leaders that we've got in other areas. If we're willing to, to do that, you really can become an integral part of the, the overall organization and have a big influence on um, how, the, how the company develops and grows. Okay. What do you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career? Um, I guess I wish wish I would have known how much fun it would be, and, and you know it's not. You know, I, I guess I, I had this perception, and maybe even a little bit of a fear, when I left the um, investment banking world and, and the consulting world before that, that um, that it might be a little bit boring. Um, that you know you you get into a, a role, and you know you have your processes that you go through and every month end you do a close and then year end you've got to close and, and you kind of go through those things. But really, um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and, and if you're willing to kind of, as I said earlier, kind of get out from behind the computer screen and, and out of the Excel workbook and, and interact with, with folks on the team, um, as, as a CFO, I feel like I'm in a unique position because of the knowledge I have of the numbers. I've got a unique ability to influence decisions that, that maybe others in the organization don't have. And that's really fun and energizing, especially when you start seeing results from the, the, the decisions that you're able to influence. What personal habit do you believe has contributed to your professional success? I would say probably reading. Um, I'm a voracious reader of primarily two genres, uh, business, books, blogs, articles, um, and then biographies. I love reading biographies because I think you can learn so much from them, the, the challenges that people face, what they've had to overcome, and, and the skills that they developed that, that ultimately led to their success. So I think biographies are great. 
And then on the business side, there are books in uh, a lot of different categories, books on leadership, books on what companies can do and have done to be more successful, uh, books on the history of companies that have been both successful and failed, so business biographies in a sense. And as I'm reading those, I always try to pause and, and think about how how does what I'm reading apply to my current situation? What are the lessons learned from what I'm reading that I can take advantage of and uh, and apply to my current situation? And there almost almost always are lessons from from those things. And so I think constantly reading and learning from from what I'm reading. What book would you recommend to aspiring finance leaders? One of my favorite books that I've read recently is called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Uh, Ben Horowitz is currently a partner at a venture capital firm out in Silicon Valley, Andreessen Horowitz, and prior to that, he was one of the early employees at Netscape and then was founder and CEO of a company called LoudCloud, which uh, went through a couple couple different transformations and then eventually was sold to Hewlett Packard. And the book is really more about leadership than it is about finance, but I found it to be very practical um, in in the things that it addressed and, and the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Things like why is it important to have one-to-one meetings with your direct reports and how do you conduct those one-to-one meetings properly? What do you do when your business has outgrown the capabilities of someone that you have leading a particular function and how do you manage that transition? How do you effectively communicate with and utilize your board? Um, things like that. And I, so I, I found the book just really insightful because it was very practical versus some of the other books that are more theoretical in nature and, and coming from one person's perspective. Um, it was great to, to see the things that he learned um, from his experience and that I've been able to translate into um, some of my experiences, so I highly recommend it. Finance thought leaders don't go anywhere. We're about to ask our finance leader guest for their business priorities over the next 12 months. But first, permit us 30 seconds to thank our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Final question, what are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Yeah, my, my biggest priorities are really more on the human capital side than the financial capital side. It's ensuring we have the right people in the right positions with right tools to deliver for our clients. Um, we're, we're growing very rapidly, and so as I mentioned earlier, attracting and retaining talent is very important to us, and it's something that we spend a lot of time uh, and energy focused on. So we want to continue to add to our team, and then we want to retain them one, once they're here. So that, that's probably the biggest priority for us as a company, 
for the finance team, I would say my biggest priority is to de- develop a more dynamic forecasting process. The um, the days where you developed a, a budget and, and that's all you operated off of for the full year or you developed a three-year plan or a five-year plan, I, I think those days are gone. We've, we've got to be much more dynamic in how we update the forecast for the full year, for the next 12 months, for the next couple of years, and, and be able to do that without it being a, a manual process. And, and there's some things we can do from a system standpoint that we're looking at and in investing in, in new systems, as well as some things we'll look at um, adjusting from a process standpoint. But, but that's probably the biggest area from a finance standpoint. Ron Shaw, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jack. Uh, thanks for having me. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. At CFO Thought Leader, we wanted to give you, the listener, some added clout when it comes to selecting next season's CFO guests. We call it Listener's Choice. And in the months ahead, our Listener's Choice guests will enjoy some added box office clout as we advance the CFOs you most want to hear from into next season's CFO lineup. To learn more about CFO Thought Leader's listener's choice, visit us at cfothoughtleader.com or go ahead and email me at jack at cfothoughtleader.com. Hey, one last thing. It's no secret when we originated CFO Thought Leader, it was with iPhone users in mind. Android users, we have neglected you. And so to make amends, We just released a CFO Thought Leader mobile app just for you. It's now ready for download on Google Play and Amazon Android Markets. No matter what world you're part of, thank you for listening.